0: Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Rachel Jones, the GP, and today I'm talking with Anna Fenton about some of the questions menopausal women often ask their primary care practitioner. And Anna is going to share her key learning points for discussing answers to these very questions. Anna is a Gynaecological Endocrinologist at Canterbury District Health Board and she's a member of the Pharmacology and Therapeutics Advisory Committee for Endocrinology. She's also past president of the Australasian Menopause Society. Welcome Anna.
1: Thank you Rachel.
0: So let's start with asking what is menopause?
1: A really good question because I guess literally the definition means the end of menstrual cycles, but I think uh, we tend to use it as a term a lot more loosely than that to really describe that whole uh, perimenopause transition, uh, which includes the time leading up to our period stopping and the time after where uh, the symptoms may be uh, an ongoing issue.
0: What age does it start and how long will it last for, Doctor?
1: Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, We know that probably uh, 30% of women are aware of mild symptoms uh, in their mid to late 30s onwards, so it does start uh, in a minor way at at a very early age for some women. Uh, Normally, the the age range for periods completely stopping uh, in a westernised country, including here in New Zealand, uh, would be between 45 and 55 years of age. So we start to get much more concerned if we see a young woman whose periods have completely stopped uh, before the age of 40, because that would potentially signal that she has developed uh, premature ovarian insufficiency, and and that's associated with uh, a range of significant long-term consequences.
0: So what's happening to my hormones?
1: During a, a woman's 40s, the hormones start to fluctuate pretty wildly. So rather than there being this sort of slow and consistent decrease in hormones over time, it is very much a roller coaster. So the hormones are up and down. They're not consistent from one month to the other. And that really reflects the marked changes in ovulation that are going on uh, as women get older. Uh, It it really also reflects the reason why we don't encourage blood tests to be done, because they are just a snapshot in time and really just don't reflect the overall uh, change in hormones.
0: What symptoms might I experience? How is this going to affect my health?
1: Well, it's very different for different women. We, we know that probably one in four women will fly through menopause without really any significant uh, symptom at all. Uh, for the rest of us, the 75 to 80% who do develop uh, symptoms, then it can, can vary widely, and that really reflects the effect of oestrogen on all parts of the body. So women may notice changes in temperature balance. It may be the the well-described hot sweats or or flushes. Uh, It may be uh, changes in coldness. So women may feel more cold than they felt before. Uh, They can describe a variety of muscle and joint aches. Uh, There are changes in mood, uh, brain fog, uh, changes in concentration, word-finding skills. Uh, Women will often notice changes in weight or particularly changes in shape uh, with weight being... uh, sort of moved to around the sort of abdominal area. Uh, it's important to always ask about genital urinary health because women may start to develop bladder infections uh, and vaginal dryness with time and it's not something they often feel free to volunteer themselves. So being able to ask as a doctor about those things I think is is really important. Uh, and asking what impact uh, these symptoms are having on her relationship and her work and her quality of life is is very important.
0: Does every woman get these symptoms, doctors? What are the statistics?
1: Yeah, fortunately, um, not everyone does. We know that one in four won't get many symptoms at all, if any. One in four will get them really badly, uh, and the 50% in the middle will be aware of symptoms that may or may not have a, a significant impact on their quality of life
0: could you check my hormone levels?
1: Yes, well that can be a thorny issue as a doctor to confront. Normally we would dissuade women from having hormones checked because it's often not helpful. Uh, the hormones that are classically checked, the estrogen, LH, FSH levels will fluctuate wildly over the course of the day and what you receive as your blood test result is is purely a snapshot of that point in time. And we have women with with raging menopausal symptoms and what looks like completely normal blood test results. And I would be a wealthy woman if I got paid a cent every time I see a patient who's been told that they can't be menopausal because their hormone levels are normal. So they're not helpful and I would certainly actively dissuade uh, patients from having them done unless they're in that group of women with a very early menopause where they are a crucial part of making the diagnosis.
0: I don't get periods due to my myrena, and I don't have any other symptoms. I'm a bit confused. I'm 52. Can you work out my menopausal status?
1: So that may be a situation where the hormone levels come in handy. If there are no marker symptoms to guide us or changes in periods, uh, we might get some hormone levels done in that situation. Occasionally in our practice, we might measure an AMH or anti-malarian hormone Uh, that will hit zero uh, as an indicator of egg reserve three to five years before periods stop completely. So it is slightly more reliable as a marker of menopause, but certainly not something that I would recommend for routine practice. But where the situation is tricky and you're really not quite sure where a woman is reproductively, whether that Mirena needs to stay in place for contraceptive reasons, uh, then that might be another situation where blood tests can be useful.
0: My symptoms are impacting negatively on my sex life. What can we do about this?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important issue to address because it's often forgotten, uh, whether it's through a woman's embarrassment about mentioning it or or the doctor's embarrassment about asking. Uh, We know that 40 to 50% of women four or five years out from their last period will start to get really significant uh, vaginal dryness, uh, shrinkage in the vagina and obviously changes in in lubrication and and the the thickness or robustness of the vaginal wall. So it is a really important uh, issue to address. Um, I I would tend to suggest that we talk about all the options that are available uh, to uh, help with comfortable sex. So it's worthwhile exploring where the issue is. Is it because there's dryness that we can treat with uh, lubricants with moisturizers with local vaginal estrogens for which there is a large body of, of good safety and efficacy data is it more to do with libido and exploring uh, what's impacting on that you know is it a stress related thing uh, are there relationship or financial issues work related stress so it's really exploring all of those aspects not just concentrating on the genitourinary areas of the body but also a woman's entire life because Uh, sexual function in women is complicated, uh, and we need to ask all of those relevant questions.
0: I haven't had a period for a year. Do I still need to use contraception?
1: Yes, well, I think there's often uh, an assumption that, uh, you know, if we're at menopause, we don't have to worry about contraception. But I think all of us have had patients that uh, have had uh, a late in life uh, pregnancy. And the advice that comes from the best uh, international guidelines is that if Uh, a woman's last menstrual period has occurred uh, after the age of 50, she needs contraceptive cover for a year after that last period. If the periods have stopped before 50, then she needs contraceptive cover for two years. Uh, And that is a really important issue to to talk about. Uh, We know from our family planning colleagues that women in their 40s and 50s are often repartnering and out there with, with new partners. So the contraceptive discussion often needs to be tagged to discussions about uh, sexually transmitted infections as well.
0: I'm worried about brittle bones. What lifestyle advice can you give me?
1: Yeah, Well, lifestyle has uh, important impacts on uh, bone health. Uh, we know that exercise, particularly weight-bearing exercise, uh, will uh, slow mm. the rate of bone loss down. And if you start a program, it can actually build uh, bone density pro- from good good levels of exercise. Um, diet's obviously important. Uh, We don't tend to focus too much on calcium these days because most of the research would suggest that that calcium at midlife is not as important as we used to think it was but certainly making sure that women aren't drinking to excess and they're not smoking uh, those are are all important uh, aspects of bone health.
0: What lifestyle changes can I make to reduce my hot flushes?
1: Yeah I think there are a lot of very practical suggestions we can make in terms of the kind of clothing that women are wearing, so going for natural fabrics, uh, worn in layers so that you can remove the layers uh, if a hot flush occurs, uh, having a small portable fan, um, a, a spritzer so that you can spray yourself with some cool water, um, all of those very practical suggestions, and particularly for, um, for sleeping at night, having a fan, having a window that you can possibly open beside you, um, having layers in the bed uh, that you can toss off um, all, all of those just very practical suggestions I think are really important.
0: What treatment options are available for these hot flashes and how effective are these treatments, Doctor?
1: Yeah, there are lots of options and I think this is always my um, my most important aim when I'm talking to women about menopause is to make them aware that they do have options because often the perception is they either just have to grit their teeth and bear it or, or they take hormone therapy and there's nothing in the middle. And I think I would certainly uh, refer... Uh, my colleagues uh, and women to a number of fantastic websites that uh, will give them information about uh, their treatment options. And that allows us to back up the conversation that we have uh, in our consultations. Uh, so there are a range of uh, evidence-based complementary therapies. So we know uh, that there is some evidence with the use of remifemin to help with uh, hot flushes. Uh, There is some evidence with St. John's Wort to improve mood, uh, and there have been studies done with MACA uh, from one of my colleagues in Hong Kong, uh, which suggests that may also lift mood uh, in perimenopausal women. Uh, There is very good evidence with hypnosis. There have been three uh, controlled trials with hypnosis showing that that uh, is of some benefit. Uh, And we've also had studies looking at things like uh, acupuncture, yoga, Uh, some of those other complementary approaches which don't seem to be so effective. Uh, But we do talk to women about CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy and mindfulness, um, because again, there's some good evidence that they uh, will help a woman cope with the the severity of the symptoms that she may be faced with. Uh, There are also a range of prescription therapies that are non-hormonal that we talk to women about, uh, and the evidence would uh, support uh, trials of cetirizine, which is a common antihistamine that most of us have in our bathroom uh, cabinet. Uh, there is some data with oxybutynin that most GPs would be very familiar with uh, in terms of using it for bladder issues. There's some very nice data with that showing that doses of around 15 milligrams a day uh, will help attenuate flushes. I think most GPs are familiar with using uh, SSRI therapy uh, and there's some very good data with gabapentin uh, so I, I tend to work my way through those options when I'm talking to women. So they are aware that there is something there that, that will do the job uh, and that will be something that they feel comfortable with using. Uh, for the women where uh, hormone therapy is not an option and they've tried some of those options that we've just discussed, uh, here in Christchurch we are using a nerve block procedure called stellate ganglion block. Uh, which is a local anesthetic procedure just into the base of the neck, uh, which is a very straightforward procedure, uh, putting local anesthetic into the stellate ganglion, which is part of the sympathetic nervous system, and that for many of our cancer survivors is a useful technique to attenuate the flushes and sweats uh, by a good 50% plus. Uh, And then, of course, we have the the discussion about hormone therapy, which can be a bit uh, more detailed because of the controversy in that area
0: is hormone replacement therapy safe to use? What What's the latest advice?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think, you know, hormone therapy has been through a roller coaster over the last uh, 15 to 16 years. Uh, the controversy really arose from uh, the Women's Health Initiative study, which was uh, a group of large studies involving around 27,000 women uh, that was uh, commissioned by the NIH in the United States. Uh, It was done uh, to look at the safety of hormone therapy in older women, uh, women in their 60s and 70s, because it had been well recognized uh, leading up to the 1990s and early 2000s that younger women at menopause who took hormone therapy uh, had lower risks of a range of significant health outcomes. So the purpose of the NIH was to really look at whether those same benefits would occur in much older women. What unfortunately happened is that uh, they got some preliminary unverified safety information at the five to seven year point into those studies. And rather than verifying it, they released that, that information to the media. Uh, and that suggested to women that if they took hormone therapy, they were at much greater risk of clotting, stroke, heart attacks, and breast cancer. So it had a devastating effect on the area and women uh, largely in droves, just exited off their use of hormone therapy. And it's really not recovered in any great way since then. And that's really despite, uh, I think, there being some very good reanalysis of that data, despite uh, a number of other studies that have been done uh, looking at the normal young group of women at menopause using hormone therapy, and despite the fact now that we have guidelines from all of the international expert groups that tell us that hormone therapy uh, is safe. So I think we can summarize for the women who are at menopausal age experiencing symptoms that uh, the, the the risks are tiny in that age group, and all of the expert societies have come out saying benefit exceeds risk. Uh, we know that uh, quality of life is improved. Uh, the Cochrane Collaboration has confirmed that there is a 50% reduction in the risk of coronary artery disease in women taking hormone therapy at menopause. Uh, There are reductions in death from all causes, including Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, reductions in bowel cancer, and reductions in fracture risk. And in that younger group, we don't tend to see any increase in clotting or stroke risk. And in fact, in September of 2017, The researchers of the WHI have come out into print and rescinded all of the uh, data that suggested there were increased risks of of adverse events in the cardiovascular area. Mm. So that are are now all gone. So that only really leaves uh, the concern about breast cancer. And I think what we've learned uh, over the last 15 years uh, of controversy is that uh, we don't see uh, an increase in breast cancer risk in women using estrogen alone. It seems to be a progestogen-related phenomenon, and it appears to be related to the choice of the progestogen and the length of therapy. So some of the the older, more synthetic forms of progestogen seem to be associated with an increase in risk after more than seven years of use, and that increase in risk uh, affects one in a thousand women. So it's a small risk, uh, but it appears to be there. Whereas the oral uh, micronized progesterone, a more body-identical form of progesterone, seems to have a much lower, uh, if perhaps no risk, uh, of breast cancer. So there are certainly differences in in, um, the products that are available, uh, and doctors can certainly tailor their use of hormone therapy and their choice of products to an individual patient. Mm. And certainly all of the guidelines now come out saying uh, benefit exceeds risk, Uh, Ensure that you have a dose and a duration of therapy that is appropriate for your patient.
0: How long should I stay on it and how do I wean myself off it?
1: Yeah, and those those are really good questions because I think, with the evidence we now have, there is no arbitrary time uh, at which point you have to come off it. Uh, We know that 10 to 20% of women are still having menopausal symptoms 10 years after their last menstrual period, so it needs to be continued for the length of time that is appropriate for that woman. Uh, And often what we'll do every couple of years if we're using it mainly for symptom control is just to slowly wean it down and see what's going on in the background. And if the symptoms flare up and they're severe again, then we increase the dose and continue on. Uh, But for the woman whose symptoms do go, that progressive weaning process allows them to uh, gently exit off the hormone therapy uh, and, and then remain off it. And it's Possibly, although there's not a lot of evidence to back this up, it's possibly a kinder way to come off the hormone therapy than just a cold turkey approach of of abruptly stopping it um, because you can get a short-term flare uh, in symptoms doing that. Now, if a woman's been off the hormone therapy for six months, uh, it won't matter at that point. If the symptoms are still there in the background, they're going to come back regardless of whether she's weaned down slowly or cold turkey off, but I think the initial experience when women wean down slowly is a is a slightly kinder one.
0: What are the costs involved to me?
1: Well, we are lucky uh, here in New Zealand. We have uh, fully subsidised uh, oral uh, and patch oestrogen uh, of the progestogens that are available to us. The Marina obviously can be accessed uh, under the sort of special authority criteria. Uh, Norethisterone and medroxyprogesterone acetate, which are the two subsidised uh, progestogenic options are there and then micronised oral progesterone is, fun, is, is sorry unfunded at the present time uh, but is available. And if we elect to prescribe that, then the women are looking uh, at a monthly cost of around $35 to $40.
0: My friend says I should ask you about body identical hormones. What are your thoughts about this?
1: It's a very good question. Um, there's been uh, a lot of Controversy about uh, bioidentical hormone therapy uh, at menopause. And this is an area that's really grown out of the controversy related to the safety of prescription hormone therapy. Uh, at the time of the controversies around hormone treatment safety, uh, groups started to manufacture what they call bioidentical hormones. And they were marketed on the basis that these were more natural and safer than prescription hormone therapy. So, what we know is that they contain exactly the same hormone products, but they come without any quality control um, or assurance that you're getting a, a standardized dose. Uh, so, there are certainly no expert groups around the world that endorse the use of the, the bioidentical creams or troches. And what I tend to discuss with women is the fact that what we prescribe in terms of our oral estrogens, the patch estrogens, and the micronized progesterone, which are all of pharmaceutical grade and largely funded by Pharmac, they contain exactly the same plant-based estrogens as the bioidentical uh, hormones, but they come with that assurance that the pharmaceutical companies have to have done research to prove that they're they're safe and effective uh, and we know what we're getting in each individual tablet. So they're not, not something uh, that we would put to one side and prescribe bioidentical creams in preference. I would hope that the The bioidentical hormones really are something that people put to one side and and don't go down that path.
0: It all sounds rather depressing. Can menopause be a positive experience?
1: Yeah, I think when we have these kind of discussions, it does sound a bit gloomy, doesn't it? But I think, you know, for many women, it is a really uh, uh, positive time because obviously the periods have stopped. And for the women that have had, you know, significant cyclical symptoms and pain uh, associated with that, it's a much better time of their life. And I think as we see women coming out the other end of this, you know, they they take charge of their lives. They become more confident. I think um, it it is actually quite an empowering time in a woman's life. So I I do tend to also focus when I'm talking to women on the positive things that come out of this rather than sending them away feeling terribly depressed.
0: Mm. And what resources can I look at to find out more information?
1: Yeah, I think Dr. Google is something that most of our patients use, but there are uh, better resources than that. Um, There are two websites that I would strongly endorse. Uh, The Australasian Menopause Society, uh, which is uh, menopause.org.au, has fantastic resources for doctors and for women. So there are uh, over 30 information sheets and there are half a dozen excellent videos that go through uh, all of the options available to women at menopause, both the alternative and the prescription therapies. They, They cover um the, the pros and cons of hormone therapy in a way that's very accessible uh and they're only five or ten minutes long. So uh the AMS website is a fantastic resource. For women, uh there is also another great website which is Menopause Matters uh, or one word .co.uk. Uh, that's run by one of my colleagues based in the UK who uh, has been a, a past president of the British Menopause Society and that is an absolute treasure trove of fantastic information for, uh, for women and she's very active on Twitter. So if you've got patients who are into social media, um, there's a lot of information that's very evidence-based that comes out onto Twitter uh, on a daily basis uh, from the Menopause Matters group. And then from a a local New Zealand perspective, um, I would recommend a book written by by Bev Lawton, uh, who's one of my uh, academic GP colleagues in Wellington. Um, She published this a couple of years ago now. It's called Menopause, a New Zealand Guide. Uh, It's published by Your Health. Um, It obviously deals specifically with the New Zealand uh, setting and is very uh, readily uh, accessible as a resource for uh, for women and for their GPs and I think a lot of the libraries uh, stock that so um, Menopause a New Zealand Guide by Bev Lawton um, strongly recommended.
0: Thank you Anna it's been a pleasure talking with you today. If you're a New Zealand primary care practitioner and would like to claim CME points for listening to this interview fill in the reflection of learning form found on our website goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.